Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canada makes a tentative deal to produce the Novavax vaccine in Canada if it gets approved, but is it too little too late? Ontario's not going to make its February 5th goal of vaccinating all long-term care home and high-risk retirement residents due to continued vaccine delays. We'll give you the details on that. And who is an essential worker in the GTA? According to the new data, millions of us are. We'll get all the details from senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, David McDonald. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about vaccines and uh, the announcement yesterday, of course, uh, from uh, the Canadian government, a step forward in Canada's race to get more COVID-19 vaccines by producing them right here in Canada. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced new details on agreements with three organizations that are going to see COVID-19 vaccines produced right here in the area, probably starting in Montreal. Global's Ottawa correspondent Abigail Beeman has some details. Novavax is the latest vaccine manufacturer to ask Health Canada to review its product. And now Ottawa has an agreement in principle to make that vaccine at the new National Research Council facility being built in Montreal. Pending Health Canada approval, tens of millions of Novavax COVID-19 doses will be made right here at home. Construction on that facility is expected to be finished by the end of the summer. But according to Canada's industry minister, not just the vaccine, but the plant itself needs Health Canada's approval too. And that's expected to take several more months. We expect by the end of the year to be in a position to be producing vaccines. Abigail Beeman with the details on that. So what are the implications to this? I mean, a lot of folks are looking at this, and I'm hearing mixed reviews, some suggesting what a great day for Canada, finally. Others are saying it's too little too late. I want to bring uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull into the conversation. Dr. Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Doctor, uh, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks so much for inviting me. You've heard some of the mixed messages and some of the stuff on social media. I mean, the government is always going to have its critics. I get that. But uh, I, I'm getting a consensus from medical professionals that uh, that this is a, a, a big move for Canada. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the critical comments are coming around the fact that this is going to happen so late in the game. So the government is indicating that, you know, ideally we'll have everything, everybody vaccinated by September and end of the year at the latest is what the prime minister has been saying, but yet this thing isn't going to get up and running until towards the end of the year. And so it seems like it's coming, you know, kind of on the back end of, of where we're hoping in terms of our vaccine plan. And I, I understand that. I think, you know, some people are saying, hey, where were you guys a few months ago? Why didn't you start thinking about this a long time ago? But do we, uh, I guess, have to put things in perspective. We weren't really actually talking actively about vaccines and vaccine distribution until December. That's really only a few months ago. Well, that's it. I mean, the the troubling part is as we're like we're in this, and some of the reasons why we don't we didn't have that type of thing up and running, you know, have nothing to do with COVID. It has to do with with a decades long, you know, mul- multiple decades of decisions around relying on global supply chains for vaccines. And so here we are in the middle of a pandemic where you know we nobody seems to have enough, and everybody there's only two vaccines approved. Everybody in the world is waiting, and so yeah, I mean, like I think looking forward. This is kind of scary to think, but maybe come December, we're not going to be out of this, right? Like, and maybe we're in the middle of a second wave now, and there's going to be waves in the future. And having this capacity in Canada can't be a bad thing. But, you know, some, as I'm sure you saw the, the front page of the Globe this morning, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the conclusion there is that this is all a distraction from the fact that, that, the, that we've got a problem in terms of vaccines. Well, and we have a problem. I mean, there, is, there are some global problems with the vaccine, but I think your point's well taken. 
uh, you know, if you're going to simply use that timeline and say, well, this isn't even going to be up until maybe late 20 this year or even into 2022, we don't know uh, where we are in the game right now, do we? I mean, we, we know there's a second wave. Uh, uh, yes, maybe we are going to all get vaccinated by, you know, November, December or whatever it is of this year. Uh, but we don't know about these variants. We don't know about the impact they're going to have. I mean, we're not even sure at this point, are we, doctor, if, if whether or not we're going to need, you know, annual boosters on this. I mean, you know, we're, we're still kind of making our way here and trying to make some determinations about what it is we're dealing with and how it's going to respond. That's it. I mean, I think I heard that this morning, too, about like, what is the possibility that we're actually going to have to we're going to need these vaccines on an ongoing basis, in which case building this kind of capacity in Canada is absolutely essential. And, we, you know, we should be very happy that we're doing it. But if you if we take that decision and and see it in the context of we want vaccines right now, then sure, there's going to be a sense of disappointment that it's coming so late. But I think the right the right view of it is to think long term and think, unfortunately, we might need this kind of of capacity on a much longer term scale, in which case this will make us much better off. I mean, you know, we get a flu shot every year, you know, and it's like, it's, yeah. I know this is not the flu, I get that, but I mean, we, you know, there are some things that we just have to prepare and, and, and take, you know, defensive measures, I guess, against almost on an annual basis, and this may be one of them. Uh, we're not quite sure what we're doing with this yet, so I, I, I guess what I'm hearing from a lot of people is, oh, better late than never, at least we're getting into this, because uh, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, I mean, we kind of got sloppy about this. I mean, I know that we used to do uh, not necessarily vaccine things, but a lot of uh, medical research and development that went on here, and you're right, there's for generations now, uh, federal governments have just kind of said, yeah, we don't really need that. And, and the money has just shriveled and that industry withered. It, it's about time, I think, we revived it and understood that, you know, we we, we need to be ready for something like this. I'm, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot in what you just said. Like, I, I think on some level, you know, nobody anticipated this type of thing. And no matter what you were doing or where you were investing, nobody was prepared for this, you know. And so, we're all kind of dealing with this and we're learning about, as you say, you know, we're learning about the, the, the nature of the virus and we're learning now we're having to deal with variants, which is extremely scary. And I think, you know, going forward, that's part of the challenge too, is that what we think is going to be an appropriate response today in two weeks time and two months time, that might be totally different. That's true for Canada. That's true for everybody. But I think, you know, for us, it's, it's, and it's not like we haven't invested in, in R and D, of course not. It's just that, you know, the world has, has evolved in such a way over the past several decades where global supply chains are a thing and pharmaceuticals have, you know, that's been affected by that. And so I think at this point, you know, the government is, is responding. But of course, in through all of that, people are understandably very anxious about, okay, you know, yeah, that's great that we're going to have that production capacity in December, but what are we going to do now? And, and therein lies the problem, and I think one of the things I guess we have to realize here is that uh, this government, I guess really no government is in the vaccine business. This, these are private companies. And, and you know, just mm-hmm. as we say, governments have maybe, you know, let us down by not funding these, this kind of work in the past. And uh, the private companies themselves look at their bottom line and say, look, we don't need to have a plant all over the, you know, in Canada, one here, one here, one here. And they've kind of, of centralized their, their operations to European de- destinations, mostly around Belgium and Germany and places like that. So uh, I, I guess we have to rethink this whole process now, don't we? It's really interesting. Like there's there's really interesting pieces here around, you know, decision making between states and private entities and what is the impact of, you know, having to kind of share that decision making space in a time of crisis. And as you say, you know, there's there's obviously, you know, many 
all of the people in the world need this. And there, there are many countries that are, are, you know, kind of vying for availability on, on vaccines. And so we're, we're in, I think, a really interesting period where, um, Canada is, is, you know, one, obviously one of all the countries in the world that need access to this. And I think we're going to be seeing some, some, you know, hopefully really interesting developments in terms of partnerships that will make us more, you know, ready and able to deal with these kinds of things in the future. Have we uh, learned our lesson here that these things do crop up? I mean, you know, I, I can remember having the discussion uh, with a number of people in the medical field after the SARS uh, problems that we had some years ago. And, and let's face it, that was analyzed and there were reports written about that and recommendations made uh, about what happened. And, uh, I, you know, I guess, you know, they sat in somebody's bottom drawer on their desk someplace for a while and we just seemed to forget just about everything. And we were pretty much, I mean, globally caught off guard by what happened here with, uh, with this virus. Uh, are we aware of the fact now that this could happen again? Oh, I think so. And I think um, coming out of this, like as I mean, right now, I feel like we're still in the, the very much the emergency stage of this where everything, it, you know, people are scrambling and reacting. But I think in the months and years ahead, everybody is going to be absorbing what happened. And a whole bunch of things are going to have to change, not just our approach to public health, but also our approach to governance and decision making. And as we said, you know, partnerships internationally and with private organizations, totally fundamental shifts on an institutional level and on a state to state level, I think are going to have to happen because obviously when a problem like this happens and it's global, you know, individual states and individual private companies are not themselves able to respond to it in a way that's totally adequate. We all need to do something together and we're seeing, you know, how how those kinds of agreements can be reached even in times of crisis and so i think going forward like not only are we going to have to change you know again our approach to public health and be ready for for health outcomes and health crises like this but also change our relationships and change our institutional outlooks so that we're we're ready from a governance perspective to deal with it as well well, and that means commitment uh, by governments, and, and not just with the Canadian government, but I think just about every government in the world these days. Because, uh, as you mentioned, I mean, the partnerships that are so necessary right now with the private companies with governments, uh, the government's role, essentially, I guess, uh, really, when you look at it, doctors, is to supply the money. Uh, you know, Operation Warp Speed in the United States, of course, funded an awful lot of this. Now, Pfizer, of course, likes to take pride in the fact that they say we didn't take one red cent. But the trials that they did over in Germany were funded by the German government. So they do rely on on, on, on political, you know, contributions and money for these things. And, and there's going to have to be, I guess, uh, as you say, uh, some discussion about doing this on an ongoing basis because the politicians don't tend to think in big picture 5, 15, 20 years down the road. And, and they're going to have to in a situation like this. That is a really, really important point. You're absolutely right. Governments tend not to. Governments tend to think on election cycles, yep. and which can, you know, in some countries are shorter than even they are here, right? And so how, like, what kinds of incentives can we think about to get governments to think more long-term? And as voters, too, like, we have a big, we have a big role in that. Like, how can we do our part? to make sure that we're we're really holding governments to account for thinking long term because you're right like this isn't an investment that the gov- any government individually can can sort of deal with on its own this is going to require forward thinking support from public services both you know at all levels of government this really is like a total reset a total rethink 
Well, and I know that, uh, you know, with the work that you're doing in Dalhousie and, and universities right around the world, of course, they rely on that. And, and I, I, I get a little nervous about this. And I'm, I'm looking at the gathering storm down the road here uh, because there, we've seen how this has impacted our lives in just about every facet of our lives now, not just from a public health standpoint, uh, but from an economic standpoint. We know about the, the recession and the problems we're having there. And governments are, are in debt up to their eyeballs right now. At some point, they're going to have to start paying that debt off. And you know what happens there, Doctor, as soon as they have to come with these tough decisions. Do we really need to spend money on this? Because we're trying to save money, and taxpayers are on our backs about this. And and I'd hate to think that the very thing that put us here may actually be one of the first sacrificial lambs. Like, oh, we can't afford to do this in the long term. It's, it's not going to happen again for another 100 years. That We would be naive, I think, to, or the politicians would be naive to make that kind of a conclusion. Well, that's it, right? And I mean, in, when we're in the middle of a crisis, as we are right now, sometimes it seems a little bit coarse to talk about the politics of it, but that is part of it. And because it's part of how the governments are figuring out how they're going to handle all of this. And you're right, like when we get to the point that we look at the numbers and say, okay, uh, we can, you know, we've made some progress in managing the public health crisis. Now let's focus on the economic crisis. And how are we going to pay that down? How are we going to do this? And I mean, what, frankly, like this government was elected in October 19, 2019. We have not had a budget yet. And we, I mean, I think when we finally get there, we'll see a little bit more of a picture of how this government plans to manage the economic crisis going forward. But that, I mean, going back to that word, you know, reset, rethink economically, obviously, this is going to require, um, I think, a, a whole different conversation and a whole different consensus around what our priorities are going forward and making sure that we're able to manage this in a way that is inclusive and that is equitable and that brings everybody further ahead. Well, I can remember a discussion I think you and I had back in the springtime about this and uh, when we were just talking almost on a, uh, you know, a a, a, a what-if situation about vaccines because we were no but then we started to hear that it could take four or five years it could god knows how long to, to actually develop a vaccine you know they're still trying to develop an aids vaccine i thought they had one some years ago and it didn't work out and then we started hearing all these stories about hey you know what we're on track and the obvious question is how come we're going so quickly on this one when we couldn't before and, and the answer that uh, i think you gave me is money the government's just opened the checkbooks and said what's it going to take we'll, we'll do it uh which is not as you said, not usual for governments right now. So I, I don't know how much longer that uh, that attitude is going to exist. Well, that's it. And I mean, I also don't know how much longer, again, to go back to that political point, like when the government is going to feel like they really have to bring a budget forward, not just for accountability purposes on a financial side, but also just to give us a sense of where their priorities are going to be and, mm -hmm. you know, wh where we're going to find that balance. Because people, I think, are, you know, at this point, we're, 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 really wondering right like i mean obviously like the 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 priority is the public health side the priority is the vaccine but at the same time you know we're, we're still in we're still in lockdown in many parts of the country businesses are suffering because of that some that made it through the first wave might not make it this time and so that's part of the crisis too uh, it's going to be an interesting discussion and debate, and you're right. I mean, to, to at least have a federal budget, so we've got a benchmark, and we say, okay, where are we going, and, and you know, how, what's the path forward? And I'd like to hope that those discussions are going on in Ottawa right now, but I guess what we'll focus on right now, uh, maybe, as, as the Globe and Mail said this morning, maybe this is a distraction, but, I mean, it's a welcome distraction because it means that we're we're in the game, and I, and I think you're right. We absolutely need to be in the game, and, you know, it, it, there's – as one of the doctors on the news last night said, it's never too late to get into this. I mean, you know, at least we're there now uh, because we'll see, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. Uh, thank you so much, as always. I really do appreciate your time and, uh, and your expertise on this, doctor. Well, thanks for having me on. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, of course, from uh, Dalhousie University.
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about uh, the uh, federal government announcement, of course, yesterday that uh, they're going to start producing vaccine right here in Canada. And, and you know, the timeline, I think, is, is pretty straightforward now. It's probably going to be early into next year before these things are going to be available to the general public. Uh, and we are concerned about that because, obviously, there have been some vaccine shortages. Ontario, for instance, says it's now going to earmark vaccines arriving in the coming weeks for second doses that need to be given uh, for those who have already had the first shot, of course. Premier Doug Ford says the province has taken some criticism for holding back some doses, but the supply delays have proven the strategy seems to be working. Here's what the Premier had to say. Uh, you look at our friends over in Quebec and, and doing a great job, but they have zero second vaccinations. Zero. We have 70,000 already done because of the smart move that General Hillier and the task force and the ministers and everyone made the choice to be cautious. Well, Ontario's kind of falling off the mark here, too. I mean, they had said, uh, the Premier had said that uh, by February 5th, uh, all long-term care uh, high-risk tre- residents were going to be done. That's not going to happen. And, uh, well, not unusually, there's some finger-pointing going on. Here to talk about this is Richard Brennan, uh, of course, retired journalist who covered the Queen's Park for many, many years, uh, and Parliament Hill, for that matter, too, for the uh, Toronto Star. Uh, so good to have you back on the program, Badger. Uh, <laughs> a, a government blaming somebody else for this and saying it's their fault, it's their fault. Of course, all the premiers seem to be doing a little finger-pointing now, don't they? Well, we're running out of fingers here, Bill. <laughs> uh, I was... Uh surprised yet not surprised that uh, Angus Reid has a poll out today that said, imagine this, Canadians are losing confidence in the uh, government's uh, vaccine distribution plan. Imagine that. <laughs> and they're saying that people are now saying that they don't think that this uh, uh, pandemic and all the problems surrounding it are going to be dealt with until 2022. That's uh, that's a little frightening, and it's it's of course, running contrary to all the stuff that we're being told by governments. And, and and I get that. And listen, I think, you know, the criticism, I think, is warranted because we had high expectations, I think. But one of the reasons we did is because the governments kept giving us these lofty goals. You know, for the, the premier saying, look, if by February 5th, that's all going to be done. We're going to be moving on to the next phase of this. Wow, okay, that sounds pretty good. Uh, you don't, with no indication at all that, well, you know what, there could be a blip because this is all brand new, and bingo, we got nailed by this sort of thing here too. And then, the, you know, if, if they hadn't made that, that announcement and said, yeah, this is all going to be done by such and such a time, I mean, initially, I think a lot of us thought we were probably going to be vaccinated before the Victoria Day weekend this year, and that's not going to happen. Not a chance. Uh, we'll be lucky if we're, you know, inoculated by the end of this year. That's mm-hmm. my, my guess on it. It's it's just there's I, I the sliding or the, you know, this moving target that they every day seems to change about who's going to get what when, and that changes. And I, I find the pandemic has highlighted so many shortcomings. It's it's quite amazing. And you know, like we don't have capacity or ability to produce our own vaccines. Uh, we did at one time with Knot Labs. A, a version of Knot Labs still remains in Toronto, but it's not what it once was. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, we find out that, you know, we, we didn't learn, I guess, from uh, SARS that we don't have this ability. And now they're going to, we're going to have a plant, a laboratory in Montreal, that's not going to be completed probably to the end of the year. And we're going to have vaccines then. And then we have, then we have all the other uh, vaccine makers are not living up to their contract to deliver them. It's it's a total and utter fiasco. 
Well, and the one, let's face it, I mean, there's a lot of analysis that has to go into this sort of thing. The, one of the first elements, I guess, that we need to come to the realization of is that we're dealing with private companies here. I mean, these are for-profit companies. Uh, you know, this, this is not the government's vaccine. I mean, they certainly paid for the research for it. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's Pfizer, Moderna, and, and Johnson & Johnson, and whoever else is going to be in the ballgame in the next few months. Uh, and they, they, they control it. I mean, they, they've, they've got all the cards right now, and we're just kind of waiting. And as you say, uh, I'm not suggesting they're necessarily, you know, doing this out of, out of any nefarious idea, but they can pull it back and hold back and reduce the number, would do whatever they want to do, and there's not a whole lot we can do about it. And we're told now that we won't have uh, delivery of any significant uh, amounts of vaccine till the end of March. We're going to get some dribs and drabs, but significant amounts. And, you know, that's, that's a long time. We've, you know, we've already had from, what, uh, 12, about 1,200 residents of Ontario nursing homes have died since the first doses of vaccine uh, arrived in mid-December. Now, there is, a, there is a sense of urgency here, but nothing's living up to it, so to speak. You know, I, I don't, you know, you, you can blame the government and say, well, you know, you should have had thought about manufacturing years ago. Okay, well, that didn't happen. They, they, they ordered, made all these uh, huge orders from various companies that were producing vaccines, which was a smart thing to do. But they didn't take into account that, you know, it's one thing to order something, but it's another thing for it to be delivered. So we got that problem. And, and then, we, you know, we had the problem in, in the long-term care homes. The government, uh, the Ford government's under criticism now for uh, vaccine the, the workers in the, in the long-term care homes rather than the, the uh, residents themselves. Now there's an argument on both sides. It, it just seems every time you turn around, there is yet another problem facing us with this vaccine. And, and it shows what, what people are thinking about it from that Angus Reid poll. Young, yeah, you brought up the long-term care thing, and that, that's something that's really sticking in my craw right now, too. Uh, because we're into the second wave right now, and we already know the numbers. that They're horrific, and you know we knew it was going to be a, a lot worse, and, and they, they were absolutely right about that. But what is it? What, 85% of the people who have died in this country from COVID have died in long-term care facilities? Uh, I don't care if you're the premier, the prime minister, whoever you are. Job one should be stop that. Stop, inoculate everybody right here, right now. You know, forget about this priority list. Right now, that's right. That's the hot spot right there. Every one of these long-term care facilities, and you've seen some of the the, the stories that we've heard from these, and they're horrific conditions in many of these places. And and with, you know, they're not doing much about that either. So I mean, you know, is, is the government really doing enough to help itself? Because you know, the experts, Richard, when they came out and said, "Okay, we're going to be able to get these vaccines just before Christmas," remember, and that surprised a lot of us. They said, "Wow, we didn't know it was going to be that fast." But they all, to a person, said this is not uh, the magic bullet. You can't just say, okay, you, once you get inoculated, you're free and clear. You still have to wear masks. You still have to social distance. You still have to look after all the things that we're supposed to be doing, probably for another year and a half or two years at least. Uh, and, and we're not doing that. And governments aren't being very good about this either. And it, 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 People are so confused. It's no wonder they've lost faith in the government right now because everything the government seems to do, which is usually in half measures, just isn't getting it, the job done. Well, there's so many people, as you point out, there's so many people here to, to point a, the, a finger of blame at, and us included. The public, the general public can be aware of some of this, too, 
for not for not abiding by the rules, for, you know, for for not wearing masks and not staying home, and and you know, and coupled with with the problems of vaccine delivery, and, and coupled with about you know whether certain people should get it or not, it's like. You know, it's like Groundhog Day almost. It's funny. Yesterday was Groundhog Day, but it feels like every day is Groundhog Day here because we get, we 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 hear the same stories over and over again, and nothing seems to change. Well, hopefully, at some point, we'll get these vaccines and if they live up to their contract, and things will start to change. But you said, as you said, it's not a magic bullet. This is going to take a long time. To get out of it, get out of the system. What's your reaction, and what's your uh, your evaluation on how they're doing this? I mean, I understand obviously that there's not enough vaccine for us, what they want to do. I get that, and that's that's the reality that we deal with. But even when they had the stuff in hand, uh, we you've heard the stories as well as I have. A lot of the stuff has been delivered and not being used right now. I mean, they, they, there seem to be a lot of problems with the delivery of this, and you know the the vaccination sites, and then what are we going to do? I, I know in the states now they're starting to talk about uh, going back into the into the, the pharmacies and the drugstores. So, uh, like you get your flu shot on, over in Canada here about doing that sort of thing. Uh, accessibility is going to be a big thing. I mean, are people going to line up for an hour and a half to go get their shot, or are they simply going to say, well, I'll wait until it's more readily available? I, I don't know that these guys, by these guys, I mean the, the, the governments, both federal and provincial, really have their act together when it comes to how this is going to get rolled out. You, you, you touch upon something there that that I think is, you know, people look at other countries and what's going on there and how people are being vaccinated by the tens of thousands of, a day. In, in Detroit, for example, they're already talking about vac- vaccinating restaurant workers. They, I mean, that's how far down they've got down the scale. And we're talking about still basically the very, the very you know, uh, major hotspots and the people who need it most still haven't got it and there we're talking about countries that elsewhere who are getting it you know by like i say by the tens of thousands and we and we're you know the frustration i guess by the public is that when's our turn yeah that's the question everybody's asking you know when are they going to get around to us when are they going to say yeah okay yeah roll up your sleeve it's your turn uh, and, and that's kind of frightening. I mean, you saw the reporting that was out there last week, and they started talking about uh, it probably the middle of 2022 before a lot of this stuff is going to happen. It, it, part of it's because of the shortages, uh, but but part of it was, and this was an independent body that did this evaluation, is they said, look at look at Canada's a big country, and and we're spread out. I mean, you know, it's it's a lot easier in the United States with these large urban centers like Detroit or New York or Los Angeles or places like that, or even over in in the European countries. But, you know, there's a lot of remote areas here, and you've got to get the vaccine to them, and those are hot spots, too. Uh, so there's transportation problems, there's storage problems. I mean, we've got a lot more challenges than a lot of other countries do. Uh, was that factored in? Yeah. It's, there's just so many questions. And, 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 I, and, this, and I think the other thing that bothers people is, is kind of is the statements that some of the politicians are making. Like, you know, for example... Um, uh, Minister of Innovation uh, Francois Philippe Champagne has, you know, said yesterday, you know, after yesterday's announcement that Montreal is going to get this this uh, uh, laboratory, and he said, you know, Canada will be better prepared for the next health emergency. 
Well, isn't that great? You know, talk about Captain Obvious. People have been let down here in many ways, and it's time it's time for the government to really, I mean, go go after these drug companies and say, look, we've got a contract here. We want those vaccines now. Everywhere else in the world's getting them, but Canada isn't. You know, we're not we're not some kind of third world country, and that's the way it. We're almost being treated, which I guess if many people would find offensive, inc- uh, offensive, including me. Well, and there's politics involved in this too. I mean, you know, we we all know that, of course, that in the initial stages, some months ago now. Uh, the Canadian government was negotiating with China uh, about their vaccination program, and that that uh, that program they had an agreement in principle. We're told, and the Chinese government stepped in and basically screwed us around. Yeah, and you know, you know, it. that's that's pure politics. Yeah, it's got nothing more to do. It's just pure politics. Like, yeah, you know, we're mad at Canada right now uh, because of Huawei, and uh, and you know that's why the two Michaels are still incarcerated. And by the way, you're not going to get any of our vaccine. Uh, they put too many of their eggs in that basket, and and so we had to play catch up. And 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 so that's politics. That's an element to this. Uh, then you have to look at you know the other companies that are involved in this. And and like I said, they just arbitrarily said, well, we're cutting back. I mean. <laughs> This, you know, for Pfizer to simply say we're rolling back production so that we can uh, fix some stuff in our factory is, is unconscionable to do that. And, and you're right. I mean, the numbers here are, 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 are not very impressive. I mean, we're told now that we're going to get about 310 dose, 310,000 uh, doses of Pfizer and Moderna vaccines in Ontario probably from now until the end of February. But, you know, with the two shots, Richard, I mean, that's, that's 150,000 people. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's not going to cover the, 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 much in the province at all. It's it's in dribs and drabs, and you know I, I can't you know we I can't you know you can't blame throw all the blame on either the provincial or federal governments. But what my one thing that really still bothers me is that I don't think we've got a commitment yet from uh, the European Union that they're going to make sure that Canada uh, gets gets its uh, you know necessary doses of the vaccine. They've already said that they're they're thinking about restricting exports of this mm-hmm. vaccine, and we we hear well we've got a commitment to maybe a commitment from uh, this is from the federal government of course we maybe have a commitment from the uh, European Union that we we won't be affected by this. Well, you know what, I, you know you think that, but is there a real commitment? Is there something in writing that says? The European Union won't stop exports. I mean, so there's a further complication, and I don't know it's politics or what it is in that case, but it, the fact is we're going to be affected by it. If, if they had the nerve, the temerity to stop, stop exports to Canada, all, as far as I'm concerned, all hell should break loose. Well, here's the the announcement. To, this is the release that came out earlier this morning. I'm sure you saw it. Uh, the European Commission says it has already authorized the vaccine delivery to Canada and will apply COVID-19 vaccine export control restrictions only in, quote, very limited cases. In other words, they could arbitrarily say, yeah, that's all you're going to get. Yeah. Uh, you know, so there's, that's, that's not a guarantee at all. No. And nor, nowhere near it. And that, again... Where, where are we going to be in six months? That's what people want to know. You said we were all going to be vaccinated, or if we, anyone who wanted to be vaccinated by, what, the end of September, I think it was? And now we're, we have no idea when it's going to be, uh, when it's going to happen. And, 
and as, as I said earlier, you know, people are thinking that, uh, you know, this may run into uh, 2022 before we're all done. Well, there's a, a, an element to this that I find kind of frightening. And, you know, when we talk to a lot of our experts, I think, you know, I've probably, I know more epidemiologists than I thought I'd ever meet in my life I mean, in the last nine months. And that's great because these people are really on the ball and they, they get the delay of the land. They know it's happening. But they've all said to a person, if we don't vaccinate everybody, and including third world countries, uh, this this pandemic is going to come right back at us again. You know, but what, and so what are we doing? Instead of thinking you're right, we have to make sure there's going to be proper distribution. Countries are, for all intents and purposes, hoarding it, and simply saying we're not sending it overseas until everybody in our country is done. Well, that's not going to do anything for them, and it, and it's as we know, it's not going to make them a whole lot more safe. I mean, it's going to be great to, but they can still contract that. We know people already that have had the vaccine. Some have had both shots, and they still test positive. So it, it does not eradicate this, and as long as it's going to be thriving in some of these other countries, uh, we're still in trouble here, and we don't seem to get that message. Well, and that was recognized by Connaught Labs when it was established in the early 1900. They produced vaccines, and they distributed it around the world for no cost, mm-hmm. because they knew that was the only way to eradicate it, was to make sure everybody was vaccinated, you know, polio and, and, and otherwise. Well, we're not there yet. And, and again, it go, it, it's, it's what you said right at the beginning of the conversation. It's about politics. In other words, the experts have said, make sure there's equal distribution so that everybody is on the same plane. Now they're simply saying, no, not until all our people get vaccinated. That's politics. In other words, they're trying to curry favor with the voters in that country as opposed to doing what's right and what's supposed to be done from a global standpoint to try to knock this virus down. Well, we, we've got a bit of politics going on here, too, Bill. Oh, now, sure. We, we had the liberals uh, right now, the federal liberals, uh, running campaign-like ads on TV in the midst of a pandemic. And I, and I look at those and say, really? Is, is that what your interest is right now? Is not making sure people are vaccinated and, and making sure we do our best to get out of this problem? And you're already looking at the next election Maybe they should, maybe in Ottawa they should stop thinking about you know whether they'll be uh, win the next election or not, and start thinking about what the heck can be done for the people. What what can we do to make sure that this doesn't happen again? Well, uh, that would be a revelation if in fact it does happen. But then you've covered politics long enough to know that they don't I'm hold your breath myself. waiting for it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Badger, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this. Stay well. Yeah, you too, Bill. Thanks. Take Bye-bye. care. Richard Brennan, of course, uh, ex-broadcaster uh, and retired journalist who covered the Queen's Park for many, many years, of course, and uh, knows what of he speaks when he talks about the way the politicians react, especially in crisis situations like this. Uh, he's seen more than his share of those over the last number of years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've spent an awful lot of time talking about the numbers, of course, when it comes to COVID-19, and we're getting daily results about, you know, where the caseloads are and the number of fatalities, sadly, that are, are occurring. And the discussion oftentimes seems to circle around the frontline workers, uh, those essential workers that are working because they have to. I mean, you know, let's face it, if, the, if you're not an essential worker, you're encouraged to work from home, if at all possible, to social distance, etc. We can't all do that. And uh, we've had a number of discussions over the last couple of months uh, with some experts about uh, the exposure that those frontline workers and essential workers are having. Uh, we had a discussion last week, you may recall, with Dr. Amit Arya uh, that says the government's got to do more. That's all there is to it. 
it's very clear to everyone that the threshold for intervention has to be very low. We, it's a matter of life and death for people who live in long-term care facilities. And that's really what we're, we're begging and pleading for the Ontario government to take action today, given the humanitarian crisis that we're facing in our long-term care homes. And, and that's only one element of it. As we mentioned, they are certainly essential workers. But, I mean, we've given that, that, that title to a number of other people that are still working and, and frankly, and, and could be putting themselves in peril simply because of that. Uh, there's a report that's done on this that gives some analysis that I wanted to get into today. To that end, we're so pleased to welcome uh, David McDonald to the program. Uh, Mr. McDonald, of course, is with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Uh, always a welcome guest on the program. David, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us again today. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. We've had the lockdown here in Ontario, of course, as you know, since December 26th uh, in, in the Hamilton area. Of course, it was the week before that, simply because of the caseload that, uh, that Hamilton had. Uh, the numbers seem to indicate things are working, but there's still a lot of concern. I know you talked about this in, in, in the report you did here about the impact and the exposure that, that essential workers are having. Yeah, I mean, we often think of essential workers as people working in a hospital or a long-term care home. Those people are certainly essential. But the broader question is, in these lockdowns, how many people are still going to work? Uh, they can't work from home, maybe. Uh, they work in an industry that requires them to go in. Um, and that's what this uh, Toronto Star story looked at, and that sort of helped with some of the data on it. Um, 65% of the people in the GTA are considered uh, essential in the sense that they can't work from home. Um, so 45% of them uh, have basically no new restrictions at work. I mean, work is just the way it always was. Maybe you have to wear a face mask, but it doesn't really change that much. Another 20% of workers, there are some restrictions. You think of, uh, say, retail stores that are doing curbside pickup, for instance, or restaurants that are doing delivery only. Um, you know, these are people that still have to go to work, uh, but there's some restrictions in terms of their exposure. I mean, you add those up across the entire GTA, 65% of workers are still going to work. And so, I mean, one of the big challenges with a lockdown is when 65 of the workers, 65% of the workers, it doesn't apply to them because they can't they have to go to work. You're you're in real difficult straits in terms of trying to con trying to constrain the uh, the spread of COVID-19 when a lot of people are still going to work uh, and still being exposed at work, um, as opposed to you know people kind of getting together in the backyard, for instance. How safe do they feel? I mean, they've got to know that they're, 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 they're risking of, of, of contracting or testing positive or, or running into somebody who might have something like this is, is increased significantly if that's the environment they're in. Well, sure. And, and, and it's not, this isn't a hypothetical risk. I mean, you look at Canada Post, for instance, uh, you know, we're seeing massive outbreaks at, uh, you know, uh, warehousing facilities and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, this isn't, Oftentimes, there isn't, a, there isn't a lot of transparency around which workplaces uh, have seen big outbreaks. Um, and the fact that these outbreaks are happening means that, I mean, this is an example of a failure of public policy um, to be doing routine and constant testing of these big workplaces. Um, and outside of things where we, we're already doing constant testing, like, like healthcare and long-term care, in places that you wouldn't think um, you know, would be quite as affected by, by COVID-19, places like curbside retail pickup, manufacturing, and warehousing. A lot of these places are still open. Uh, you know, people might be wearing masks, but um, um, there really hasn't been a lot of interest in shutting down workplaces because of outbreaks. And there certainly hasn't been a substantial amount of um, on-the-job rapid testing in workplaces. And so as a result, you end up with these huge outbreaks in workplaces that certainly expose everybody in the workplace, but then expose, you know, their family and friends as they go back home. Um, and, you know, it's very differential, too. You look at the different regions. I mean, Peel region, for instance, has got a huge warehousing uh, sector 
like warehousing and storage sector. A lot to do with, uh, um, you know, transport in and around the uh, the airport, uh, which is located mm-hmm. in the region. Um, and, and people are being exposed, uh, you know. And, and, and part of the problem, too, is that we are seeing some of those big outbreaks reported in the media, but we're not seeing all of them reported in the media. We're not seeing great transparency in terms of which workplaces are seeing big outbreaks. In contrast to, say, uh, schools or long-term care, where we have you know pretty decent public information about where those where those things are happening. I think we've we've kind of become numb to some of the terminology, though, haven't we, David? With the, uh, you know, using the term outbreak. I mean, and we think of outbreak like, oh my God, you know, we got a, we got a real problem here, a crisis situation. But we've had medical offices of health uh, in various parts of the province and the country say, well, if you have one case in a facility, we call that an outbreak. So, well, so there's an outbreak at Canada Post. We never see those numbers, though. It's more than one person. Uh, you know, it's a tragic death at one of the Canada Post uh, depots that you mentioned about last week, and, uh, and somebody who you know all of a sudden contracted and two weeks later passed away unfortunately but we don't know how many other people are impacted by that they, they, that's a story they're not telling well and that's it i mean the the, the threshold for outbreak is, is fairly low and so you know you have to see some transmission on a particular site and it is happening in that workplace as opposed to, to totally separate people coming to the same workplace with COVID 19 they might have gotten from someplace else um, you know, it's considered an outbreak once you start to see some transmission at a very low rate. But I mean, you know, the example of Canada Post, it wasn't one or two people. It was, you know, it seemed like it was in the hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, I mean, I don't even, you know, again, the terminology there, an outbreak is one or two um, transmissions on a site. I mean, this is hundreds. And so, and this is the sort of thing that we have to stay on top of um, when we want to stop this type of community spread. And we're, we're not staying on top of it. I mean, that's one of the big issues here is that there needs to be much more proactive inspection of these workplaces to make sure that, you know, folks are getting the PPE, they're using the PPE. Um, and we are testing because we know that there are going to be outbreaks in these big settings, warehouses, um, you know, food manufacturing, uh, manufacturing generally. We know there are going to be outbreaks there. We knew this from the outset, uh, you know, the, the initial outbreaks in um, uh, in meatpacking plants, for instance, at West, I think was a was a warning sign early on that this was going to happen in these types of settings. Um, we know there are going to continue to be outbreaks. And so uh, there needs to be ongoing rapid testing, which we aren't doing in, uh, in in these types of settings. And we have to be willing to shut those places down once we see big outbreaks to make sure that, uh, you know, everyone's put away in quarantine. I mean, the other issue, too, is for workers is that, uh, you know, a lot of these workers not necessarily unionized, don't have great benefits or any benefits. They're low paid. Um, they probably don't have sick leave, paid sick leave. Um, and so it makes it very difficult for them to say, well, you know, I don't feel very well. I'm going to take a couple of days off and go get tested and come back and make sure everything's fine. Uh, a lot of workers just aren't going to aren't going to take that risk. They don't have, because they don't have paid sick leave, so they're not going to get that time back. But they also, because they're not very well paid, and they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily unionized. They don't necessarily have good, um, uh, good, good uh, job tenure. And so they may well say, look, I don't want to be a bother and say to my manager, look, I can't come in for this shift because maybe I'm not going to get a shift next week. Mm-hmm. And while that may be illegal in some cases, doesn't mean that people aren't very concerned about it. What protections are we offering for people? And you used the phrase that we used to use a lot about a year ago when the first pandemic hit and the first lockdown occurred, and that was rapid testing. And, and expert after expert would say that's the key. Uh, you know, rapid testing so we understand. And if you're had to work, well, as the discussion was gone going in, for instance, in a grocery store, that's an essential worker. You know, we need food. Uh, and those people are put at risk. Yes, they're wearing masks. Uh, they're supposed to social distance. You've been in a grocery store lately. You know, that's not happening as much as it did a year ago. So we're getting a little sloppy 
sloppy with this, but the, the you know when that's happening though, David, you've got to think that people are f- thinking, you know, am I am I at more risk here? You know, because there's more people crowding in here. I mean, when we started all this stuff, for instance, a grocery store or a pharmacy, people were staying 20 feet away from each other. You know, and they and you know the hours on the floor, and they, boy, if you you know you got the looks and you got yelled at if you were going the wrong way down an aisle we seem to have forgotten all that and with i guess the and the the, the people that are still there in that workplace are the ones that are saying hey you, you you're not following the rules here uh, and that puts them at risk not me or if i'm the one who's abusing it yeah i mean look i'm sitting at home taking this call from you so i you know i'm not putting myself at risk i, I i'm not in a setting with 20 or 30 or 50 people and a whole bunch of public coming in you got to think that grocery store workers are and I mean, you know, you can see this, you can ask them and they're, they're nervous about going to work, you know, because they have families, too. And they have mm-hmm. people at home that might be exposed to this. They don't want to have exposed to this. There's also groups of workers that we don't see every day as regular consumers. I mean, we don't go to warehouses. We don't go to manufacturing plants or uh, food processing plants. But a lot of people work in those areas, too. And, uh, you know, they're in settings where they've got they're, they're with 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 or 200 other people that, that are coming together every day. Um, again, maybe they're not social distancing among themselves, maybe because they can't. Um, and so those folks, I think, as well, are probably pretty concerned that they're going out of the house every day and might be uh, might be contracting the disease. You know, they don't they don't necessarily have a lot of standing at that uh, at that place. I mean, jobs, uh, low skilled jobs are are hard to come by these days, given some of the layoffs. And so people don't want to put their jobs at risk by by complaining saying, look, you know, I didn't get my mask today. I have to use the mask from yesterday. I, I, I can't get far enough away because of the way these machines are set up. Because, I mean, there's a real risk to folks that, you know, that are working in these places that, that maybe they don't get the shifts they wanted next week. Maybe they, you know, wanted 30 hours and they get 20 hours. Um, and all of this is may not be technically legal, uh, but I guarantee you it's happening that, uh, you know, if you're if you're the bothersome employee because you, you want to try to stay safe, um, that managers might hold that against you. Well, and you've seen that happen. I mean, you know, it's like so many other things that we've talked about here, too. I mean, that stuff that you just described happened long before the, the pandemic came along, but now people are in an even more precarious position than they were perhaps even then. Like you say, if I decide I'm going to take tomorrow off because I got a bit of a scratchy throat, uh, I don't get paid in, in a lot of those jobs. Uh, you know, and if I don't get paid, then I'm falling behind even further in my rent or my, my hydro bill or whatever the case might be. I mean, they're, they don't really have a choice at all, do they? No matter how they feel they've got to go to work because they need the money yeah i mean here's the here's the sort of hourly wage that people can expect in grocery stores 15 dollars an hour that's the median hourly wage barely above minimum wage in ontario and the gta uh 18 an hour if you're working in warehousing uh 20 an hour if you're in food manufacturing uh and so these are not high paid sectors uh, you know they're at at or above minimum wage but not dramatically so um, particularly in uh, food manufacturing and warehousing, more likely to be uh, more likely to be new Canadians, uh, landed immigrants, um, and certainly the case in, in long-term care homes, where uh, again, much more likely to be landed immigrants or new Canadians. Um, now, you know, in, in the nursing homes, you're more likely to have higher unionization rates, which can, which you know, one of the first things you bargain for when you get a union is sick leave. It's one of the first things you bargain for, and then some sort of uh, uh, pension. So nursing homes are more likely to have some of that sick leave, but even despite that, I mean, these because of because of the underfunding there, um, you know, nursing homes have been hit very hard. I mean, people just walking off the job because the risks are just way too high. But in the other sectors, I mean, food processing or or warehousing, unionization rates are are quite low. I mean, warehousing it's only eight percent. That's well below the the national average. 
Um, and so it's, it's less likely that you're going to have built-in benefits like paid sick leave. Now, of course, there is a federal program, the, 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 the CRCB, the Canada Recovery, mm-hmm. um, sorry, CRSB, sickness benefit. Uh, and so if you are off for uh, more than half a week, you can claim that. But again, that's separate from your, from your workplace. It doesn't, you know, your, your paychecks don't continue at your workplace. Now you've got to go and apply someplace else. Uh, and I think certainly people might have been a little scared off by all the, the CERB repayment demands by CRA that they say, geez, I don't want to get caught up in that. I don't want to have a fight with the CRA because they think that I didn't meet some criteria once they change the rules after the fact. And so, you know, I think there's going to be some discouragement there. But the ideal type of sick leave plan is one where there's no interruption in your paycheck. Your paycheck keeps coming from your same employer. You know, you had to take a couple days off, but it was within the, you know, 10 or 20 days you got that year. Uh, and But your paycheck keeps coming. Uh, it's very different when you've got to apply someplace else and, uh, you know, the CRA might come after you because you, you didn't qualify. And that's the situation folks are in. Uh, and, you know, they, they, they might... They, they might well be eligible for the benefit, but they might not be sure, and therefore they won't apply. And so, you know, you've got a real disincentive for people to say, look, I feel sick, I, I want to stay home, which is exactly what they should be doing, and probably not what they will be doing, because that's not how the system's set up. Well, and again, you've just pointed out another ongoing problem here. Uh, I, I think governments at, at all levels have done a less than an adequate job of actually informing the people about what is available to them, uh, what assistance programs there are, and how they access them, most importantly. Uh, you know, they all you know, oh, go to this webpage or go to that one. You know, anybody that I've talked to that's done that, most of them anyway, have said, you know, it's, it's insane to try to navigate yourself through that. It's, it's not user-friendly. And a lot of them just give up and say, oh, to hell with it, I'm not going to bother. Yes, the, the CRCB, the CRSB, this is the federal program. is um, uh, It's similar to the, to the CERB in the sense that it's attestation based. So you ch- sort of check a box that says you're eligible. Um, but you know, you got to go through a first page that's uh, a whole bunch of legalese, and hopefully you've got a lawyer nearby to read through it to make sure that you are in fact eligible. Um, that being said, uh, you know, it's relatively easy to apply. The problem is, is that the federal government shouldn't be doing this at all. It's provincial labor legislation that should be yeah. doing this. The, the province should be saying to workplaces, just like they say to workplaces, look, you have to provide this amount of, of vacation to your employees, given tenure and so on. Uh, they should also be saying to workplaces, in this pandemic, you have to provide this this amount of sick leave. You know, And maybe there is a, a government component to that because it'd be sprung on employers um, sort of in the middle of a pandemic. But that doesn't, I mean, this is... It's, it's provincial jurisdiction for these for these workplaces. I mean, most of these workplaces are, are in the provincial labor law jurisdiction, not the federal one. And so what the feds do, and, and in fairness, I mean, the federal government tried to push the provinces to do this in the summer. Um, and the provinces said, uh, we're not we're not legislating this feds. You, you want to spend money on this? Fine. And so the, the feds created this CRSB, which is, and the CERB, which is okay. I mean, it's, 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 in some senses, the best they could do because it's not it's not their rules, right? They don't set the rules for these industries. Um, so they've made this program. It's reasonably easy to access, but it's it's not you know it's by a long shot not the ideal uh, setup. You know, sick sick leave benefit that people should be getting, which is through their employer. Exactly. Uh, we're going to leave it there. We're just about out of time. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program, David. Thanks so much for this. Thanks for having me. Bye. Take care. David McDonald, of course, for the uh, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.